This is episode 8 of Future Paisley Podcast. Future Paisley Podcast is the title for a radical and wide-ranging programme of events, activities and investments using the town's unique and internationally significant cultural stories to transform its future. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Future Paisley Podcast. This week we're joined by Dorothy Adamson from U3A and Martin McLennan from Civil Disobedience. Dorothy and Martin have been collaborating on the Paisley Radicals project to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Radical War. And to introduce yourselves and to give some background to the project, I'll pass over to you both now. Hiya Craig, thanks for having us on. My name is Martin McLennan. I am an actor and performer and an associate producer over at Civil Disobedience. Civil Disobedience won the tender to put on a series of workshops and a show celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Radical War. Paisley, The Untold Story, is an ambitious long-term heritage and cultural programme which seeks to deliver Renfrewshire Council's vision for the regeneration of Paisley Town Centre. And the Paisley Radicals project as part of that programme of activities produced jointly by Paisley TH Cars 2, Renfrewshire Council events team and Renfrewshire Leisure Arts. Now, it is a community-based project and that is where I met my new pal, Dorothy. Thanks, Martin. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Dorothy Adamson. Um, I'm a retired, very happily retired, former finance and IT professional. I worked for a very large multinational corporation for too many years and I care to remember, really. Um, So in (laughs) retirement, uh, I joined the organisation known as the U3A, and the U3A is a um, peer learning organisation. It's UK-wide. I think it actually came from an idea that was initiated in France. Um, and it has a large number of members and it has had a Paisley and District organisation for about 18 months now. Um, there are a number of interest groups there which are taught um, by certainly not professionals in, in any way, but we have groups on architecture, meditation groups, learning Spanish, etc. And I am fortunate enough to be the joint leader of the local history group. And we have taken a real interest in radical war. We were looking for something to do. None of us had done any professional research and we were looking for something to do to, to improve our knowledge on how to go about research. And the radical war happened to be chosen as the topic that we would use. Um, and that's one of the reasons that uh, I'm now in contact with Martin and trying to help him get history correct for whatever performances they plan to put on in the future. On Saturday the 1st of April 1820, people across western and central Scotland read a proclamation that had appeared overnight pinned up for all to see. It was addressed to the inhabitants of Great Britain and Ireland and it called for a general strike uh, urging workers to stay at home. And the next day, an estimated 60,000 showed solidarity to the cause. I think it's worth noting that at the time, the population was around 2.1 million. Um, It's thought that the strike was almost universally adhered to, especially in Paisley, where 300 armed men actually forced the closure of a mill that that wasn't uh, acknowledging the strike. 
then the government put up its own proclamation imposing a curfew on all the citizens followed by one offering rewards to informants. Then on the 4th of April, uh, uh, a group of men, 25 strong, left Glasgow and set off for the Carron Ironworks near Falkirk. They were intending to steal arms and were led by a guy called Andrew Hardy, an unemployed weaver. Along the way, they met other radical groups uh, led by uh, another weaver called John Baird. And as they marched, their location was disclosed to the local yeomanry. Uh, by the time they reached Bonnie Muir, they had been found and uh, the battle that took place there that morning wasn't really a contest. Uh, the radicals were soon overcome and 19 of them were taken prisoner uh, and most of the others were rounded up later. Um, there was initial reports that the radicals had in fact won and it was, you know, everybody was really happy about it in Glasgow and the surrounding area, but it turned out that it wasn't true and... Um, the radicals that were in the streets in Glasgow uh, ultimately dissipated. Um, there had been some armed risings elsewhere, and on the morning of the 6th, uh, a guy called James Wilson led a small party of radicals out of Strathaven. They marched under several banners, the most famous proclaiming, Scotland free or a desert. They got as far as Rutherglen before realising that the support they'd hoped for wasn't really there, and they dispersed and went home. This didn't stop the authorities arresting 10 men suspected of involvement. Uh, and then on the 8th, 120 of the Glasgow volunteers set off to march some of the Paisley prisoners to the Greenock jail. They came under attack from folks sympathetic to the rebels and this soon turned into a running battle. And again, uh, government troops showed no mercy, opened fire on the crowds and women and children in their sights. Uh, I th think under these circumstances... Like incredible courage must have been shown to the by the the people there because the prison was was stormed and the prisoners freed uh, and the aftermath of it was you know eighty ninety men were arrested and but for Baird Hardy and Wilson it was execution by hanging and then beheaded. It's a kind of unknown part of of history. It's not something that's taught in schools. Um, and we thought it was important to bring that forward. But really, really all of this kind of started after Peter... I think more people are familiar with Peterloo and the massacre that happened in Peterloo. Um, so really, one of the big events that happened in just in the wake of Peterloo when there, were, there was a mass meeting on Miko Riggs Moor in Paisley. Um, I think there, there were two to 300 people came along from... From Glasgow, there was music, there was a band. I mean, it was a big, it was a day out. In fact, it was originally intended to be, I think it was on the 4th of August in 1819. And not surprisingly, in this part of the world, it ended up being cancelled and postponed until the 11th because the weather was so bad on the 4th of, <laughs> 4th of August. Um, but anyway, as at the end of that, there had been clear instructions because of what had happened at Peterloo that people weren't to carry flags um, that was one of the specific things that had been mentioned. So I, after it broke up and everyone started to walk back through Paisley, um, as they were coming down Paisley High Street, there were special constables either side of the road just trying to make sure nothing was uh, really being done that shouldn't be. And uh, they decided that they would take the flags from people and a bit of a skirmish broke out. As, as uh, history tells it, there was a, the band who were from Nielsen decided to 
sneak off down Story Street, so they managed to get away and miss the mayhem. But at the end of that day, the riot act was read in Paisley, which is something that I remember as a child. My mother used to often say to me, "If you, wait till your dad comes home, he's going to read the riot act when he hears <laughs> what you've been up to today. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> apparently that particular thing, the, the riot act, the whole thing, the riot act was read three times the following day. I mean, there were windows being smashed, pretty much mayhem. So they had five days of rioting in Paisley in 1819. In fact, I think it's recognised as one of the longest periods of rioting that happened, certainly in the UK. So things were tough for the weavers. You know, they, they really, they, and and any of the kind of working classes at that time, the, the wages had been slashed. There were many men returning from the Napoleonic Wars looking for work. So it, it, was, yeah. a, you know, it was a real melting point of people who were very unhappy with the conditions that were the, they were living in. And yeah. very much so as injustice that uh, they had no control really over their future because only the aristocracy had the right to vote. Yeah, and so we should probably point or point out that I guess, like you say, there the the main things that people were protesting for was the the right to have representation at Parliament and for those parliaments to be yearly, uh, and. Also, the Corn Laws had been enacted, was it 1815, I think, which had artificially kept the price of bread uh, high. And also the right to assembly was uh, under attack as well. Do you think there's other things in there that were missing out that the people were protesting for? Well, really just in general to put food on the table for their families because there was so... That, that, that even that was difficult for people. One of the reasons the, the government was, was so concerned at you know, what they were seeing these kind of risings beginning to happen was a because of the War of Independence and b the example of the French Revolution, which clearly if you're sitting in a position of power and you see people being executed mm. in France, I think yeah. you have to start to take it very seriously if if there are any kind of murmurings of you know unrest in in your country. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I there think... were writings also ahead of that, wasn't there? I mean, there was um, the was it Thomas Paine and the Rights of Man and the Guardian newspaper, which is you know still with us today, was was formed in a uh, a direct response to Peterloo, and it was you know this new media that's. Uh, that the government are concerned are whipping people up into uh, a frenzy and now the government are using new media to also whip the people up into a frenzy. So th- things things That's don't true. always change that much in 200 years. The technology might, but... That's what I was going to say, technology is different, but that actually the radicals did have... There was a radical newspaper which was called The Spirit of the Union, I think yeah. the editor of that was a chap called Gilbert MacLeod. And there were only, I think, something like 11 editions of that newspaper ever printed. But, you know, people were trying to get the message out. So and the written word, whether it's digital or mm-hmm. or on paper, is so powerful, as you, as you know, Martin. Yeah. That... And we'd, we'd sort of briefly mentioned the Corn Laws and how that had kept the, the price of grain artificially high. And I noticed that in the papers today and in the media over the last couple of days, 
you know, as we move into a, a post-Brexit world, the internal market is going to lower their food standards here. Absolutely. And, you know, it's another one of these things where all these changes to our, our food standards, it's going to affect the poorest in society. And uh, at the time, the Corn Laws was to, to, keep the, to keep the rich rich. And would it be any surprise that the people in power or their friends make some money off of this? Would anybody be surprised if that happened? I'd, I'm no, not, not sure. Not in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing when, about a project like this. We all know that, that coming from culturally rich environments, that there's a, a deep importance in ensuring that we retell these stories for future generations. And that, you know, that's quite a large responsibility. And I think we're talking about some of the difficulty that comes with that is that you're telling a story out of time and out of context and you have to perhaps contrive a relevance to a, a, the, the current or modern audience. I think that the, the relevance is apparent in, in the telling of this story. Does that make even greater the pressure in developing this performance? I'm sure that your original plan for developing the, the performance for 2020 the impact has been massive as a result of uh, COVID COVID nineteen. But it'd be interesting to hear a bit about that part of the the journey that you've shared. The group of us who did do the research on on radicalism decided that we wanted to have an end product, and our end product was intended to be an exhibition, which we were we were going to hold in Paisley on the twenty fifth of April. But of course, when COVID came along, we had to kind of well, we had to abandon that idea make some decisions on whether we wanted to push it out to the following year or if we wanted to look for some alternative. So what we ended up doing was really just summarising our findings and we had all looked at, at different topics. I personally had looked really at all the various outcomes that people uh, came to at the end of the period. You know, For example, as Martin described, there were executions, there were transportations to Australia, there were fugitives and some of the stories there are, are excellent. <laughs> and, and that brings me back to America because most of those fugitives went to America um, and then came back when it was safe to come back. Um, and then there, there were people who chose to emigrate to other countries. Again, Canada and America were popular choices for them. And, and finally, there were people who stayed and just crossed their fingers and hoped that things would get better. And, mm -hmm. and they did, but... I think this, the you know, lesson that you learn from history is things move incredibly slowly. So yeah. uh, it takes a very long time for anything to change. And, and we all know how long it took for, for the vote. I mean, the vote for women under 21 wasn't available until 1928 or 9, I think it was, in what they called yeah. the, flap, the flapper election. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so our plans had to change. But, you know, I'm interested to hear what Martin has to say, but I know that certainly the story lends itself. There are so many parallels between things that happened then and things that are happening right here and now. I think projects like this go, go some way to doing that. I mean, you, you talk about coming to Paisley and the, the workshops that you're doing, the engagement that you found so positive, that, that builds relationships and ideas can be shared. And, you know, talking about you know, obviously it's an important story to be retold and we're talking about relevance and activism and there has, has always been a very, very strong connection between 
art and activism. And it just seems like this this project to me just seems to so many things coalesce where you can touch in so many areas just in this one discussion. But these feel like the most pertinent about about these relationships between the people that take part, the people that are involved in telling the story, and the relationship between art and activism being an important one. How do you feel about that in regards to this particular project? Um, well, art and activism are two things that people will often say is not for them. Recently, there was the Black Lives Matter protests um, across the country, but the, the one in Edinburgh was the one that I, that I had attended. And as I'd said to you, when, when lockdown started, I just all I was doing was reading books about uh, you know the 1820s and protesting and radicalism. So... I was I was actually quite excited to go on a protest after after reading about them so much. The important thing to do when you go on a protest, especially if the protest doesn't affect you immediately, like some people would say, why are you on a, a Black Lives Matter protest? What does that mean to you? And the thing is that, that, that it's not always about going along and shouting and screaming. Sometimes it's about going along and listening to what, you know people's yeah. grievances are you know and then the 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 really great thing about that day was how inspirational it was and how there was you know to to, to bring it back to our subjects there's there's always and will always be the debate over so whether protests and reforming should be peaceful or or not and that was something that they spoke about at the time, and that's something that we're still speaking about now, whether it's the right thing to do, because maybe you can help me with this, Dorothy, sort of had to petition the the Prince uh, Prince Regent, Prince of Wales, was the, the, the formal way to try and enact change. When I, when I think on Black Lives Matter, I'm, I'm old enough to have lived through the, isn't this wonderful, Martin Luther King, this is all going to change days in the 1960s, through to um, a point in time in the 1990s when I worked for a while in the Bible Belt in America. And I realised 30 years later that nothing really had changed there. Nothing really had changed. And now here we are, 2020, and the situation hasn't changed. I mean, you look at people trying to get the vote as we start here in 1820, and it took 200 years, really, for, for that to become a reality. Sadly, that just seems to be the way these things work. But in terms of the art connection, I mean, I think when you're putting on performances, you're telling stories, and you're trying to get a point across. So I, I think it, it is a, one of the peaceful ways of making a point and perhaps protesting against things that you believe are wrong or, or, or unjust. I, I suppose at this point in the podcast where we, we we ask the guests to look forward and to think about the experiences of lockdown particularly and how they've informed our behaviour and, and how we feel about things and how we can improve things in the future. But that feels like a, a really difficult question to pose particularly when we talk about we could be speaking about either time here when we speak about workers rights and demonstration and protest we speak about using your voice for change we could be speaking about now or then so it is difficult to to look forward and say what can we do to make things better 
And I guess part of that is telling the story that, that, that you guys are involved in telling. But it would be interesting to hear, how do you look forward from here? What, what do you hope that we take from now? Um, in terms of looking forward from here, I think one of the things we can do is to sort of rephrase your question slightly is put yourself forward in time and look back and do the things that, you know, that, that aren't going to embarrass you in the future and do the things that, that you look back on and say that, 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 that you're proud that, that, that you did. And what can I do now that when we look back on it in 20 years' time, you know, did I do the right thing? And in terms of, like you say, it's, it's, it's so difficult. We, we, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know what, what world we're, we're, we're going to emerge into. It's going to be a bit different from the one that we were in before, but... I think probably from, from my perspective, I've, I've had quite a lot of time to think, having been um, virtually housebound for 12 weeks or so. Uh, and I think that there are some, as I said earlier, some parallels. I mean, the weavers and the other artisans in those days were home workers. We have an increase in home workers currently. Um, the, they also met in pubs. And, uh, of course, as of Monday, people here were able to meet, at least in the gardens of pubs. And on Monday afternoon, I saw a queue outside a pub, which is the first thing I've seen since St Mern won the Cup in 1987, I think it was. It was <laughs> the last time I saw anyone queuing to get into a pub. But the, but the big thing I think it has brought is a sense of community. I can't think of anybody who hasn't said to me, I know my, my neighbours better now than I did before all of this happened. Yeah. So I just think in the spirit of kind of Pollyanna, um, as we kind of return to our shopping and our travel and our consumerism, but also returning to, for some people, to poverty, unemployment and, and debt. Mm-hmm. So... I'd like to think that what I've seen described by some people as the great pause might actually be a force for good and that we would have a greater sense of community and the government would have a greater sense of what needs to be done to support people as a whole. I mean, after the Second World War, they had the Marshall Plan. So maybe we need a post-coronavirus Marshall Plan to really put some money into the community, into the sectors that really need it, and to try and not just level out the north and south of England, but to try and level out society in the UK as a whole. So I'll get off my my soapbox now. (laughs) You know, moving forward as to performance-wise, where are we going to do it? What's, what's, What's it going to be? Maybe maybe all the shopping centres are going to close because there's going to be nobody's going to be able to go shopping, and shopping centres will become the new cathedrals of uh, outdoor spaced entertainment. With because the everybody the the move is going to be to do things outdoors, but we all live in Scotland, and the outdoors just isn't always an option. And just before we draw to a close we've covered an awful lot of information here but there, are, there is more to be discovered 
could you both provide a, a contact not only for more information on the Radical War, but for more information on the Paisley Radicals project so that people can keep up to date with developments? Sure. Perhaps I should go first on that, Martin. So um, for the materials uh, for the U3A, there, you, if you're interested in reading out, uh, reading more of the material that we prepared for the, the project that we worked on, they're all available on the U3A website. Um, if you just search on U3A, it allows you to look for specific areas and you'll be able to find the materials that are actually on the Glasgow West End U3A website. So there's information on there. You can also go on to the Paisley U3A website where you'll be able to actually send an email directly to me and I can respond to you with any questions that you might have. Oh, that's great, Dorothy. Thank you. Martin. Yeah, so um, in terms of resources, uh, um, I've I've read the sort of three or four books that have been published on the on the the subject and I would point people in the direction of Maggie Craig's book. It's called One Week in April. I don't know Maggie, if anybody's wondering, but that's that, that's the that's that's the one I'd go for first. <laughs> uh, in terms of the the civil disobedience project, um, my email address is martin at wearecivildisobedience.com. If you have any questions directly that you'd like to ask me, you can do it there. And on the website itself, civil disobedience, we are civil disobedience. Um, uh, there is information there on the, the project. And if anybody anybody listening wants to get involved, this is a community project. And community projects uh, stand on the, the strength of the community being involved. Um, you didn't mention your the podcast that you'd done, Dorothy. I, I listened to that. I thought it was really good. Oh, I'm sorry. How could I forget the podcast? Yes. Also on the Glasgow West End website, there is a podcast, a small performance, which again was meant to be, initially it was going to be a live performance uh, about the events of, of that that uh, time. Uh, then it was changed to being a film that was going to run on a loop because people were a bit concerned about doing live performance as we were all amateurs. Um, however, the coronavirus stepped in and stopped that too, but all of the people who were acting in it did their uh, their parts individually and someone very clever managed to stitch it all together. So there's actually a sound file at that on that webpage, which you can go in and listen to them relating some of the characters from Paisley, what happened in Paisley at that time. Thanks, Martin, for That's all right. That. One of the um, projects and exercises that we do with the groups that we run is we get them to write letters to their 16-year-old selves. And uh, Dorothy's one is particularly good. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to leave you all in a cliffhanger going, what did she put in her letter? What did she say? But we're going to try and get that together as a, as a project moving forward on the YouTube channel is people recording the letters to them 16-year-old selves. And it's particularly interesting in this time of coronavirus, the, the things that the things that people say and the the, ref, the the reflections that they might have um so i would i would i would say that to everybody out there what advice would you give to your 16 year old self you know cuz if one thing the coronavirus has done it's made a, a lot of people refocus on what's important so what would you tell your 16 year old self that's a, a poignant note to end on thanks again for your time we really appreciate it and we look forward to seeing how the project develops 
and we'll speak to you further yes, down the road. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having us. Thanks You're a lot. welcome. Take Bye. care, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Future Pays It podcast was created by Renfrewshire Council and produced by the team at Erskine Arts. We'd like to thank Dorothy and Martin for being our guests on this episode.